0: Teaching is important, and I really this is like one of my very favorite kind of audiences, actually. I'm really delighted to be here on those grounds, and I wanted to thank you guys for the work that you do. Um, in addition to that, uh, I'm going to be using a shorthand throughout this talk that I want you to feel comfortable with. Whenever I say carbon, you should be thinking carbon dioxide, and it's just a way that our community sort of shortens, a jargon that we use, so when we talk about you know, carbon management or carbon sequestration or something like that, we're really talking about carbon dioxide. And this is the reason why. I mean... When we look at what it is we're trying to wrestle with in the next 30 or 40 years, there's a number of issues of sort of national and international prominence. But two of the big, you know, 800-pound gorillas in the room are energy and environmental issues. And uh, not surprisingly, I work in the energy and environmental directorate, and Livermore realized this a long time ago and combined those programs. And there's a number of trends uh, that I wanted to illustrate here, and importantly, the role that technology has to provide us options out of the hole that we're digging and continue to dig. And I want to just draw your attention to two pieces here right now. One of them is this one. This is actually a paleoclimatic record of the carbon dioxide content of the atmosphere for the past 60,000 years. And you can see a couple of things in it. You can see that there are little fluctuations, but on the whole, from about 60,000 years ago to about 18,000 years ago, it drops. That's basically Big Ice Age period down in here. After that, cropped up to sort of near-modern levels. You actually have the Younger Dryas, you have a couple of other fluctuations, and basically slight increase in carbon dioxide until Huamo, we hit the Industrial Revolution, and it just goes through the roof. This red part, you're going to see in detail later, that's the famous Keeling curve, the Mauna Loa curve for the CO2 content of the atmosphere. And the dot that you have up there is 381 parts per million uh, in the atmosphere. So one of the things we know with a high degree of confidence is that the carbon dioxide in the atmosphere is higher now than it has been for the past 60,000 years. And we can actually say that with a certain degree of confidence for the past Uh, 600,000 years now. So it's been quite a long time, and uh, back even at the turn of the century, Arrhenius talked about this issue and said, you know, we're in the middle of a grand geophysical experiment on our planet in which we're burning fossil fuels for energy. And this is a way to render that this and usually when people think about energy plots one of the things you you think about is the fraction of any kind of fuel so we use more get natural gas now than we used to as a percentage of energy we use less coal now than we used to and so people tend to think about these pie diagrams that shift through time or something like that this is a very different way of looking at it what you're looking at here is the absolute amount of energy that we use through time and what you see is we never use less of any of it we use more nuclear power now than we used to we use more wood than we used to. We use more coal than we used to. We never use less of any kind. All that changes is the fraction, but the amount of energy we use goes up. And it's important to note that on this diagram, 85% of what you're looking at is fossil energy. 85% of it's coal, gas, and oil. And there's a perfectly good reason for that. Fossil fuels are great. They're convenient. They have a high energy density. You can move them around very easily. You can turn them from one kind of fuel to another. They're very fungible. They're cheap, they're great in every single way, except for one, which is this one. When you burn fossil fuels, you make carbon dioxide. And that's the problem. Everything that you do, including breathing, makes carbon dioxide. And that, in general, is a problem, and and you guys, I'm sure, are familiar with the concept of global warming and greenhouse gas. We'll talk about that a little bit more in the future. But this is one one of the big, items on the list. If you're trying to figure out what it is you have to do in the next 30 years, one of the things you need to do is you need to dive into this. And I'll explain why we think that's the case. So you can't think about the environment without thinking about energy, and you can't think about energy without thinking about the environment. And in thinking about energy, there's a handful of things that drive into what's going on. One of them is there's just growth and demand. There's population growth. We know that. In addition to population growth, there's a much stronger driver in economic growth. Economic growth demands lots and lots of energy. There's also urbanization. People moving out of rural areas into urban areas, they use more energy there. And uh, that demand continues to grow. In addition to that, there are supply challenges. Plenty of coal. That part's not quite as hard as other parts. But uh, as you'll see later, most of the resources are not where you want them. Uh, I think was it six countries own 90% of the oil and gas of the con- in the world you know that's that's an issue that's, that is important and as a consequence that has is infra- infrastructural issues and also people are increasingly beginning to go after what are called non-conventional fuels things like tar sands and oil shales and, and a whole host of other fuels these are also all great fuels but they're even more carbon intensive than the other fuels there's a security of supply issue okay so these are things like the fact that we're, you know, supporting Wahhabism in the Middle East. This is issues of the fact that our our friends who supply us oil are friends like, you know, Venezuela, where Hugo Chavez called Bush the devil a couple of weeks ago in front of the United Nations. They're one of our friends. They're one of our the good guys. Um, Nigeria is one of our friends, you know, and and this intensely unstable lo- location. And so there's this issue around supply. That's going to drive the way that people think about how they make energy infrastructure choices, energy investment choices, energy use choices around this uncertainty. There's not only import dependence, which is an issue, there's also competition. The use of uh, part of the reason why the gas prices have been so high lately is because China and India have been using a whole lot more of it. And that demand has gone through the roof, and that competition around that supply has jacked up the prices. The last thing, of course, are environmental constraints. Some of these are local pollution, you know, acid rain. And it was a big issue associated with coal burning, less so than it used to be, but still a real issue. formation of ozone, smog, and of course climate change, the carbon piece. And the way that all of these things interact with each other is going to drive the way that we choose an energy future and what it is we build, as a nation, as a world. And central to that is Technology. I'm going to be talking a little bit about technology as we go forward tonight. But the, tech, the technology piece is central, because if we don't have any technical options, then we're really in much worse trouble than, than you realize. The good news is that we're not, it's not quite that bad because we have technology options. Uh, this is a diagram which some of you are going to be seeing a lot of soon. Uh, this is a, a preview of coming attractions for people doing the energy group and what you're looking at here is a flow of energy through the United States economy so on one side you've got the sectors you've got US petroleum and imports you've got coal you've got natural gases of 2002 and the other side you have use you have transportation you have industrial uses you know petrochemicals etc residential commercial heating etc you generate power that power goes in different places one of the things that you should see in here is that when you look at this as, as a couple of things one is that the big levers are still natural gas coal and oil that shouldn't be a surprise and when you burn all of them they make carbon dioxide. Another one you should see is that you lose about two-thirds of it. That just goes away. We don't use that. Some of it we can't use easily, like the heat that an engine makes. We have to have to work to get that heat. Other parts of it we just, like in the commercial sector, we just aren't very good at doing that part, and we could save some of that. Okay? Some of it is just laws of thermodynamics. We can do this a lot better than we do, but there are these irreducible limits to what, how, how effective or how efficient a coal combustion facility can be. So a lot of it's lost. And, those, and, and these are two big things that you should get from this. The other thing is that this picture hasn't changed a lot in a long time. We use a lot of nuclear power, we use a lot of hydropower. One of the things you should, you should keep an eye on in this is the biomass in others, that others is all of the renewables, pretty much. And uh, on that first diagram that I showed you, the renewables was about the thickness of the line at the top of the graph... So, and and this matters quite a bit, and I'm going to come back to this point in just a second. The reason it matters is, right now we're venting 7 billion tons of carbon a year, which is 25 billion tons of carbon dioxide, roughly. That's what goes in the atmosphere from human beings. Almost all of that is from fossil fuels. And the thing is, let's say that you're a huge fan of renewable power, and you're sitting up here and you go, you know what, all future demand, this slope, I'm going to fill all of it, with nuclear, with nuclear power, with renewable powers, with biofuels, with solar, etc. Every new erg that goes into the system is going to come from a carbon-free source. Well, if you do that, this doesn't go away. You're still venting 7 billion tons of carbon a year, 25 billion tons of carbon dioxide. So it's an issue. And this is what the carbon flow looks like. And this is scaled around natural gas. So natural gas has a certain size. Coal, a lot more carbon dioxide. Oil, quite a bit more carbon dioxide. And that goes through the system. And right now, all of that goes up into the atmosphere. Full stop. So it's reasonable to ask, well, what's going to happen? Is this going to get worse? Is it going to get better? One of the things we see is that the good news is that OECD countries like the United States and Europe and so forth, are likely to grow kind of slowly. Part of the reason why is because we apply the technology, and we have some money, and also we don't grow as fast as we used to. But the projections are, we're not going to grow too much. The bad news, of course, is that it doesn't matter. The developing countries, most notably China and India, will. And China and India essentially have no oil and gas, and have scads of coal. And they also have about 50% of their population without electricity. This is very simple. They go, hmm, how can we give electricity to our people? We have all this coal, let's put on a show. And that's exactly what they're doing. The other thing that we know is roughly speaking how much this stuff costs today. So we have a whole bunch of different options. This is what it costs to get stuff out of the ground. Not surprisingly, OPEC in the Middle East, generally cheaper than anywhere else. It's part of the reason why we're still doing this is that it's generally a lot cheaper to get the oil out of OPEC. Other conventional oil, not so cheap. And now we're going after other things. We're going after deep water. This is in, you know, 3,000, 4,000 meters of depth, quite deep. Going into the Arctic, drilling in offshore Greenland, drilling offshore, you know, the North Slope, all these sorts of things. Enhanced oil recovery. There's a whole variety of technologies. For example, in Canada, we're injecting steam underground to get more oil out. We're doing that in California, too. Heavy oil bitumen, another piece of that. Oil shales, the United States has a huge reserve in oil shales, but it's expensive to get out of the ground and very carbon intensive. So one of the things this means is that if you actually want anything to compete, it's got to compete against this. That's a tough, tough market. It's a tough beat. It's cheap, and it's good, and it gets to your tank easily, and it's stable, and it's full of energy. And that's the difficulty. So this is where the hydrocarbon reserves everywhere in the world are. Green is coal. Red is basically oil, and, and green the lighter green is gas. And again, not surprisingly, almost all of it's in the Middle East. The, uh, general, the only real exception to that is in the former Soviet Union, they have tons of gas. So one of the things that people are talking about is building liquid natural gas, receiving terminals in California or in Tijuana or in the Gulf, so that we can get the liquid natural gas from the Soviet Union to the United States or from the Middle East to the United States, because we have actually starting to feel a pinch in natural gas in this country. Um, one of the things that people hypothesize is that this creates a whole new cartel only instead of being run by Saudi Arabia it's run by Russia which is not necessarily a very good idea either so again, all of this would not be a problem if it weren't for the carbon dioxide piece so what do we know? first of all, carbon dioxide concentrations in the atmosphere are rising due to fossil energy use that's not a surprise. And this is that curve I was talking about before, the Mauna Loa curve, put together by Charles Keeling. And you know, you guys have probably used this in your own classes. You can see a kind of a monotonic rise in the amount of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, and you can see this oscillation of the season, what he called the breathing of the planet. Carbon dioxide going out in the fall and in in the spring and summer, basically. This kind of thing. But you know, there's not any, nobody doubts this. This is not challenged by anybody. Carbon dioxide is going up in the atmosphere. We also know global temperature is rising. Nobody's doubting that, either. So this is around some sort of average, but basically over the past 150 years, temperature's gone up, there's been some wiggles, but it's gone up a lot. Importantly, it's gone up about 0.4 degrees Celsius, a little less than a degree Fahrenheit, in basically the past 20 years. And what people have recognized as a community of scientists is that that doesn't happen naturally. The only real explanation for that is the combustion of fossil fuels and greenhouse gas warming. There is a plausible causal connection. Again, this is basic physics. We know that carbon dioxide absorbs infrared radiation in the atmosphere. Nobody's doubted that. That's why Arrhenius wrote about it in the late 1800s. We knew that. Nobody's debated that. We also know that when you put that in the atmosphere, it can absorb more energy and change basically the budget of heat in the atmosphere. What that turns into on our end, what that turns into in terms of changes in precipitation, changes in temperature, changes in crop yield, all these other kinds of things, that's a lot harder to figure out. So one way to think about it is like the temperature in your own body. If your temperature goes up a degree, that might not be that big a deal. If it goes up two degrees, you know something's wrong, but you don't necessarily know what. It's one symptom, and you don't know how your body's going to respond to the next increase in temperature. As a consequence, the impacts of higher CO2 are quite uncertain. There's a few things that we know, and I'm going to talk about those in a minute. One of the bits of jargon that we've sort of accepted as a community is the notion that it makes sense to double to to say we're not going to go higher than a pre-industrial carbon content that's more than twice. So before the Industrial Revolution Revolution, it was 280 parts per million, 275 parts per million. And what they're saying is, okay, at 550 parts per million, we shouldn't really go above that. That's kind of arbitrary, honestly, but it's a good walking around number. So you'll hear this, you see the 550 parts per million target a lot. And that's one of the numbers that climatologists generally believe is, is at the point where you start getting really bad stuff happening. And I'll talk a bit about what really bad stuff means too. Under a business as usual scenario, we hit that target at 2050, okay? By hitting it at 2050, that means that my daughter will not have retired yet. I mean, my daughter's four. So what this will happen, actually. There's almost no way to, to keep this from happening unless we, we all start working together pretty hard. By the way, people don't generally realize that under a business-as-usual scenario, it calls for a doubling of nuclear power, a 25% increase in efficiency improvement, and a quadrupling of nuclear power. That's in the business-as-usual scenario. So if we don't do that, we're above the business-as-usual scenario. That means that it's very hard to do this with energy efficiency and renewables and all these other sorts of things because that's actually built in, the technology development is built into the scenarios. As a consequence, we might start thinking that some precautionary action is warranted. So what in the world could we do and will we do it? So this is the setup. We know how much energy comes in, mostly in the form of ultraviolet radiation, it's absorbed onto the surface. Some of it gets reflected out to space. Some of it gets reflected out clouds. But the stuff, that, uh, clouds, but the stuff that's absorbed basically gets re-radiated. And this is, this is the tricky part. What gets re-radiated is in a different wavelength. This is infrared. And that's the part that carbon dioxide absorbs. OK? And be, crudely speaking, this budget has been this way for a long time. Sometimes you get increased solar radiation. By sometimes, I mean, like, say, 80 million years ago, you get increased solar radiation or you have higher carbon dioxide content, all those other sorts of things. But it does balance over long geological timescales. It goes up and it goes down. Uh, one of the ways that we know that is that if we didn't have this greenhouse effect, the Earth would have been an icy, lifeless blob. Uh, geologists figured this out a long, long time ago, that we actually need the carbon dioxide in our atmosphere because the initial solar radiation of the young universe wasn't enough to keep us above zero degrees Fahrenheit. So if we didn't have the carbon dioxide, we would have been dead long ago which is not particularly news either. The one thing I want to leave you with is that this is complicated, okay? You can count it like a budget, but every one of these arrows has many, many feedbacks within them, many nonlinear processes that we're still trying to get our hands around to science, and they vary on spatial scales and temporal scales, so it's tough to figure out. Another thing that I want to leave you with is small shifts are relevant. So if you're talking about 300 megawatts per meter squared, what we're, the signal we're trying to measure here is a change of one, Okay, so it's a low signal to noise, but that amount—it's just like turning on a pail. If you got a pail, it's partly full of water. And you have a small drip. At some point or another, you hit a threshold effect, it, and it does fill over time. We also know what basically causes these radiation radiative forcings. Twenty years ago, twenty-five years ago, we just didn't. We weren't really sure about a lot of these things. But there's been 25 years of science. We know, actually, things like the changes in solar radiation, sunspot cycles, a whole bunch of other volcanic emissions, all of these things that people said, well, how do you know it's not these other natural things? We've actually measured them. We have ways of doing that. We've looked at many, many proxy data, and we've looked at things like the contributions of greenhouse gases. We've looked at different kinds of aerosols, black aerosols, sulfur. For the record, acid rain makes the situation better, not worse. Um, Other indirect effects... Changes in solar illumination, changes in land use—you know, you cut down a forest and you make it a prairie, then it reflects more sunlight. And so we've actually quantified, and measured all these things, and so we know how much can be put in other bins, and we know how much is caused carb- of greenhouse gases. And so this this is not this is not really contested anywhere. This part we understand. So a couple of salient facts. One of them is that the Earth rebalances this at a limited rate. Okay. We're putting about 7 billion tons of carbon in the atmosphere every year. Roughly speaking, about half of it goes in the ocean, okay? And the terrestrial biosphere. The other half stays in the atmosphere. Because there's only so much that the ocean and the terrestrial biosphere can take in. They're rate-limited, so the rest of it goes into the atmosphere and that increases it, the concentrations. Now, we're facing a doubling of energy demand in the next 50 years. That's the business-as-usual scenario which is 1.5% growth in emissions per month. So this part means that, if, if, as we keep putting more into the atmosphere, it doesn't get absorbed into the natural systems any faster. It's rate-limited. The other thing we know is that carbon dioxide in the atmosphere stays there for two to 300 years. It stays there a long time. So if we zeroed out our emissions today, we'd still have high atmospheric concentrations. It doesn't go away in five years. And one of the things this means is that the trouble that we're facing right now, in terms of temperature, was brought to you by the baby boomers. It also means that the choices we're making in terms of our emissions profile are going to hit my kids and their grandkids. There's this long legacy, this long elasticity in the signal. As a consequence, you know, the, the, this whole idea of well, maybe we should wait, maybe we should learn more, we know enough at this point to realize that that gets pretty risky at some point. So it's, it's entered the vocabulary now in terms of a risk management way of thinking about it. So let's say that you actually wanted to stabilize atmospheric concentrations at double pre-industrial, at 550 parts per million. Here's the emissions, here's the concentrations. Let's say 550 parts per million, oh boy, we really don't like that so much, that's this dotted green line. So let's say we want to stabilize at 450 parts per million. That means here's the current emissions, that means we have to start dramatically reducing emissions uh, this year. Well, that's not going to happen. So maybe 550 parts per million. Maybe by the year 2030, as a globe, we can start reducing emissions. But that's as a globe, which means China and India have to agree to this too. Tricky. There is value in early action. If you start flattening things out sooner, then you kind of have more time to get to where you need to get to as well. And these are the actual concentrations of the atmosphere concentrations that are associated with those different scenarios. Well, how do we know this is actually happening? Reasonable question. One of the things that should happen is that the Earth's atmosphere gets warmer. It does. We've measured that. Another thing that should happen is that the ocean should get warmer. You know? Why not? And this is a a set of measured data from around the world. These are the red dots. And what we've seen is pretty much in every ocean, we've seen substantial warming. And not just at the surface, but down to like 125 meters depth, or 100 meters depth in some oceans. And it's basically, there's, there's kind of no way that that just happens. I mean, there is shallow circulation of the upper ocean, but, but this is a huge amount of energy now that's got stored in the upper oceans. Okay? The magnitude of this is not necessarily very big. It's maybe a tenth of a degree Celsius. But you guys know how much heat water holds. That's a lot of energy. That's a lot of heat. And it's pretty much everywhere. Well, how could this matter? Well, one of the things this does is that when the surface water gets warmer, you make hurricanes. So we know that we've increased the sea surface temperature, and we know that this has had an effect on hurricanes. And this is actually work that was done by Livermore. The scientist in our group called Ben Santer has done this work, and he's working with a guy at MIT, Kerry uh, Emanuel, who first recognized this trend. We've done a bunch of sort of measurements and simulations, but the punchline is it's, there's an 84% chance, there's a, one in, there's a 5 in 6 chance, that two-thirds of the change that we're seeing in hurricane intensity is due to global warming. Okay, those aren't very good odds. You know, it seems highly likely that that's the case. And here's just a picture of Katrina, you know, to think about this. Part of the reason why this is is that once you hit... We we know enough about hurricane physics to know a couple of things. One of them is below 27 degrees Celsius in surface temperature water. You don't really get them. You also know that above 28 degrees, you get a lot of them. We also know how they die, which is an important thing to wonder about because there's no upper limit on how big a hurricane can be. What happens though is hurricanes do things like they mix with the surface ocean of the uh, surface waters of the ocean. As they mix, cold water up from the depth that cools them and they start to die. Also, they hit land; they start to rain out, that causes them to die. There's wind shear stress in the upper atmosphere that causes them to weaken them. All these sorts of things. But one of the things that we've seen is this: we've got this, sorry, dramatic rise in sea surface temperature. So one of the big things that kills hurricanes, mixing of that upper ocean, doesn't work so well anymore. One of the things we've seen is not that there are more hurricanes, but there are more high-intensity hurricanes, more magnitude 4s, more magnitude 5s. And there's a guy who used to work at the Department of Energy, used to run energy efficiency, renewable energy, a guy named Joe Rahm, very smart guy. He's going around the country giving a talk called 100 Katrinas. And the punchline of that talk is essentially you should expect something like 100 Katrinas a decade. In maybe 20 years, maybe 30 years, but you should be, not just the big storms, but storms that, that devastating. And I've heard people say, well, what are you talking about? This didn't happen in the United States this year. And they're right. This didn't happen in the United States this year. Anybody have a guess where it did happen? Don't you guys remember thousands dead in China from typhoons? They had five major hurricanes this year, big ones that caused substantial damage. Can you attribute that to global warming? This is the best guess that we can get, but that's pretty, that's pretty convincing. And this doesn't seem to go away. We've seen changes in what glaciers do, too. Uh, I'm not going to dive into this very deeply. It's a big, ugly issue. But the bottom line is that we know... That the Greenland ice sheet is melting a lot, and here's a picture from the Greenland ice sheet in summer, in which you're literally seeing a river of water running across the top of the glacier, the glacier and diving down into a crevasse. And this is not just sort of spectacular, but it's bad news because that water on the bottom of the glass, on the bottom of the crevasse, causes surging of the glaciers. It allows them to enter the water and to melt and more ablate more rapidly. And we've quantified that. I'm sorry. That's uh, did I get that? I guess I got that slide in some other place. Somewhere coming up you'll see a slide of changes in the Greenland ice sheet, but but again we we know more about this than you think and it doesn't look good. Now there have been a number of proposals that says, well maybe we can, you know, change all of the black top of the country to white top. I mean, instead of taking our roofs black, maybe we can make them white, reflect some of that energy back out to space. Maybe we could put a big reflecting mirror out in orbit and reflect some tiny fraction of the, of the sunlight. And the fact is, there are those s- scenarios that people kick around with called geoengineering or macroengineering scenarios. And there's, these are you know, scenarios that people kick around at, at coffee and in the Department of Energy. But uh, there is a problem that that does not fix. So let's say that you got the balance right, so you stop the incoming radiation, but we're still venting carbon dioxide. What you do see is that the partial pressure of CO2 goes up, and that means the surface ocean gets more acidic Because carbon dioxide goes into the ocean and forms carbonic acid. And so we've actually seen changes in pH in the ocean. And we know this because we've got hundreds of years of ocean water chemistry samples. We know a couple of things that does. One of them is that it ain't good for the reefs. The reefs fix carbon dioxide in the form of carbonate into their bodies. When it's too acidic for them to do that, they can't grow. They bleach. There's a number of other things that can happen. Another thing we know is that there's a whole... The bottom of the food chain, the uh, calcareous nanoplanktons... Both, uh, bio, both plants and animals, they require again a certain pH in the water in order to make their shells, and that pH is changing. And we have actually seen effects in the base of the biota, biota which really are not promising at all. They, their shells are thinner, and we don't exactly know what this means, but we don't believe that it's particularly good. Um, there are some species too that really are very sensitive to this and squids and cuttlefish are the, are the most notable of these because they, they build this carbon into their bodies in the form of cuttlebones. If the pH gets off, no more squid, no more cuttlefish. That's like a huge chunk of the food chain. So that's not good either. So a reasonable question again is what can you do? Here are our stabilization scenarios. If we want to hit 450 or 500 or 550, what can we do? And the good news is lots. And by lots, I'm not saying we go back to the Stone Age. This isn't some sort of you know, neo-Luddite kind of, you know we all have to you know, you know, sit in the dark and eat organic celery. That's, that's not the option. Um, there's lots of different energy supplies, primary sources of energy, some fossil energy, some not. There's lots of different conversion technologies and extraction technologies, and there's lots of different end-use technologies. So you can make improvements in any number of these. So if you're a research organization, you're going, well, gosh, we could work on all these things. What is it we should be working on? And a couple of guys from Princeton, Rob Sokolow and Steve Bacala, came up with a really great paper. I encourage you guys to read this. You can get it on the internet from their website. You can go to Science Magazine and find it in 2004 in August. And what they basically said is, look, the only technologies that matter are ones that can act at a big scale. So we've got 7 billion tons of carbon going to the atmosphere every year, 25 billion tons of CO2, If you're not getting one billion tons of carbon, it ain't important. You just shouldn't be working on it. It doesn't matter. There's a whole bunch of other things that can, but if it doesn't get you what they call a wedge, a stabilization wedge, then it's not important. And they wrote this specifically to get away from the notion that somehow we need some incredible technological leap to get from where we are to where we need to be. And so they said, what are you talking about? We have lots of technologies that can do this. It's just a lot harder than you expect, but we can do it. So the unit of a wedge is 3.6 billion tons of carbon dioxide, 1 billion tons of carbon in the year 2050. Out here. It's a triangle, so its length is 50 years long. It's 1 gigaton high, so it's 25 gigatons of carbon. If you multiply that by by 3.6, you get the amount of CO2. Great, great argument. And like I said, there's lots of technologies that can deliver this. And they went through their paper and they listed 15... 15 different technologies that can deliver a gigaton of abatement. They also said how big it had to be. That's the daunting part. This is why I encourage you guys to read this. So, you know, one of the people, you know, some people go, oh, great, well, we've got these 15 technology options. Let's just, we'll choose seven of them, and off we go. And it isn't that simple. So one of the ones that people talk about a lot is automobile efficiencies. You can get a wedge from automobile efficiencies. That's true. So what do you do? Well, right now in the world, there are 700 million cars, Okay. Right now, their fuel efficiency is something like 27, 28 miles per gallon as an average, so let's call it 30. By the year 2050, we're going to have two billion cars. Okay? There's going to be that much growth in automobile demand. And and it's not like we can tell the world not to do that, so let's just just assume that that's what we're dealing with. Well, right now, we're about 30 miles a gallon efficiency, let's double that. We'll say, by the year 2050, everybody's driving 60 mile a gallon cars. Most people don't realize just how hard that is. But let's say that that actually happens. If you've got two billion cars at 60 miles a gallon, that's one wedge you got six more to go. Another way to think about it is a wedge is something like three times the nuclear power plants on Earth. A wedge is two million windmills. You know, I don't know how many are in the Altamont. What, 300? Two million. You can do it, but it isn't easy. They're all difficult and daunting. And I'm going to talk about just one of these technologies, in part because it's my my little baby, I love it. In part because you can get not just one wedge, you can maybe get two wedges or three wedges out of it. So it's something that's substantive and can make a difference. What it's called is uh, carbon capture and storage. And I'll I'll explain what that means. But the the short answer is this is one of the tools you want in your toolkit. You want energy efficiency. You want renewables. You probably want nuclear too, like it or hate it. You probably want that option. You're gonna want this option too. And the reason why is because it can get you two to three wedges. At once, it seems actionable, scalable, relatively cheap, and it's something you do for a while. And I'll explain why that is, too, in a moment. You don't do this forever. What we're really taking about is taking carbon dioxide from a coal-fired power plant or a refinery or a cement factory, some point source, you concentrate the CO2 to 95% concentration or higher, and you just stuff it underground. Brute force. Dumb, easy. The good news is... We have all the technology pieces we need to do this. It's all off the shelf, pretty much. We know how to separate carbon dioxide from these flu streams. We know how to drill wells. We know how to inject huge volumes underground. As a nation, we've been injecting carbon dioxide underground for 30 years in the form of enhanced oil recovery. So this is not rocket science. This is rock science. And what you're really looking at is that. And there's a couple of places you can send it. Deep saline aquifers. So underground, there are rocks. In those rocks, there are pores. In those pores are water. You can't drink it. It's saltier than the ocean. So, if you inject the CO2 into that, you just place some water, voila, you've got something. You can put it into depleted oil and gas fields. Carbon dioxide comes out, carbon dioxide goes in. What could possibly go wrong? Unminable coal seams. Here what we're talking about is a different mechanism in which the CO2 actually absorbs onto the organic matrix of the coal itself. The good news is that we're going to do this part early on because we can make money doing that, and we're going to do this part later because that's where all the CO2 will go. And again, the physics and chemistry of these pieces is actually very, very similar and reasonably well circumscribed. This is an important piece of the research which I'm involved in. So what's the first thing you need is you need this high concentration stream of CO2. Now, a pulverized coal power plant, the effluent stream is like 12 to 20% CO2. That's not enough. You can't just inject that underground. You have to concentrate it up to 95%. But there's lots of different technologies that you can use, and they all have different prices. So this is an example of a amine stripping plant. It's chemical absorbent up in the North Sea. That's taking a million tons of CO2 a year out of a natural gas stream and it's pumping it underground. Um, you can also, instead of burning the coal, you can shift it to a synthesis gas, to a chemical gas, separate the carbon dioxide out of that, and burn hydrogen instead. You know how to do that too. And here's a plant in Indiana where they're doing this gasification piece. It's called an integrated gasified combined cycle plant. One of the nice things about this is you have a lot less pollution and you also have a lot higher efficiency of conversion. So there's sort of pluses in that column regardless. Another one is oxygen firing. If you burn carbon in the presence of pure oxygen, you get carbon dioxide. The stoichiometry is pretty simple. And this is one example from a company in California called Clean Energy Systems. What they've actually done is they've taken a a shuttle engine and turned it into a power engine. They've retrofitted a shuttle-boosting rocket to be a power plant. It works. Right now they're putting 5 megawatts of power into the grid. All three of these approaches, as near as we can tell, are technically all viable in about the same amount of money. So that's where we're at now. So we know that we can do that part. How about the putting it underground part? Well, we understand this part better than you think, too. So the storage mechanisms we understand pretty well. There's physical trapping. You maybe have a permeable rock, like that gray one up there where you can inject CO2. You have an impermeable unit above that that forms a trap. You inject it, you're done. It stays there, the same way that oil and gas has stayed there for tens of millions of years. For the record, this is what we do today with natural gas. We, we do natural gas storage. In fact, we do it in the middle of the Sacramento Delta. We pump millions of tons of, CO2, of, of natural gas underground there because we buy it when it's cheap and we sell it when it's expensive, and that stabilizes the prices. It's called natural gas arbitrage. We've been doing that as a country for 100 years. That technology is pretty old. Now, let's say that it starts moving around. Somehow you were wrong. You missed something, it starts moving away. Well, you still have residual forces that trap that CO2 in the surface. You know how when you wring out your clothes, they're still wet? That's why you put them in a dryer. The same thing happens with rocks. If you have a mobile... These are what the pores look like in rocks, these blue things. Here's the mineral grains, there's the pores. Well, if you inject CO2 into them... If you put in a lot, it can kind of move around. It can squip. If it's under a trap, it might not be a big deal, but something could go wrong, it could move away, whatever. If it starts moving away, capillary forces still trap a lot of that CO2. Something like 25% of the pore volume can hold CO2, and the only way to get that out is to pump it out. It can't come to the surface. It's stuck, it's trapped. Now, the longer that it stays under there, it actually starts doing a couple of things. One of the things it does is it dissolves into the water. Basically, it makes Perrier. You know, in fact, that's exactly what Perrier is. It's from a natural CO2 supply. Now, the longer it stays there, it actually starts reacting to the rock. The only way to get the Perrier out of the ground is you have to pump it out. The only way to get the rocks out is through plate tectonics. Because once it turns into rock underground, deal over. It's permanently bound in the subsurface. And one of the things that's nice about this, contrast this with, with uh, aspects of nuclear waste storage, okay, The longer that the CO2 stays underground, the more secure it gets. Totally different issue than a lot of the things that people are used to thinking about in terms of isolation containment. The good news is there's enough storage capacity in the United States and the rest of the world to do this. The U.S. has been blessed with outstanding geology, so all these black boxes are very large coal-fired power plants, and you can see they sit on top of perfectly good targets to store CO2. So there's a good match between where there are coal-fired power plants and natural gas-fired power plants in storage because you build coal-fired power plants near coal basins, and that's where you put the CO2. The good news is, again, this seems to be the case in India and China as well. Once you begin injecting, you need to monitor the CO2, right? Because we're facing a problem that's called Numbi, not under my backyard. And one of the ways that you have to get around this ultimately is you say, look, we're going to keep track of this for you. And there's good economic reasons, too. If somebody's paying you to put the CO2 underground, they want to know they get their money's worth. So you've got to monitor it. There's many, many different technologies that we have to do this and only a small number of parameters that we need to measure. So again, at its face, good bet. There's a set of tasks you need to do. I'm not going to go into this, but we understand what those tasks are. We know how to rank them, execute them, because this is all off-the-shelf technology again. It's been executed in different cases for a while. Is there technology development to be done in here? Absolutely. Can we come up with better tools to monitor? Can we integrate the systems we have? We haven't done that piece yet. But we know at its face that this is actionable. We don't need a technical miracle for this to happen. There still, however, risks associated with this. CO2 is buoyant in the Earth's crust. The Earth's crust is very well configured to store CO2, but things go wrong. And one of the things that we know happens is we drill wells all over the place, right? The whole reason to drill a well is to get fluids that are deep in the crust right to the surface quickly. If that set well is not well closed, then you can run into problems. Things can go wrong. And it's a reasonable question to ask what that could look like. So I'm going to show you what that looks like. So let's say that that's a CO2 geyser in Utah. These guys drilled the well in 1936. It's been erupting ever since. They perked right through a naturally occurring CO2 reservoir, they didn't close the well properly, and off it goes. Um you can see this guy isn't particularly worried about it. Uh in fact, the city of Green River has been trying to think about how to make it erupt more spectacularly to get more tourists coming into it. And uh this is you know, this is not just you know Hokum, it's really the case. And you know, take a look at this next picture. I love this picture. Here. You know, I'm not to say that it's all hunk and dory, but, you know, it's like little urchins frolicking in the CO2 geyser. You know, it's like, this is, it's, it's not some, you know, catastrophe that's going to be visited on the world because there's only so much CO2 that can come out of a hole at a fixed rate. Just to make sure that we understood the risk, we did some simulation around this at a facility called NARAC, National Atmospheric Release Advisory Center. If there's any release of anything anywhere in the world, we have a plume prediction within 15 minutes. It's an important national security mission of our laboratory. This is what that geyser looks like in a NARAC simulation. And what you see is once you get about 50 meters away from it, you basically can't see it anymore. That blue line is 100 parts per million. So very, very low concentration. That it dilutes and mixes in the atmosphere very rapidly away from that spot. Just in case, though, we develop special algorithms to compute the risk, if we didn't know where it was going to come out, we didn't necessarily understand the source term. And even in a place, if you said, gosh, in this huge part of Indiana, if CO2 is a well we don't know about, what are the risks? Now, at least you can map out the areas where you have elevated risks and try to monitor those more carefully. I don't want to give you the feeling that this is easy easier. It's worth saying, well, what's a wedge of carbon dioxide capture and storage? What does a wedge look like? It's helpful to think about one plant first, okay? So here's one plant... We're injecting CO2 into a couple of layers. It's getting trapped by the cap rock, by residual phase trapping, by a whole bunch of things. Now, 1,000 megawatt power plant makes 6 million tons of CO2 a year. If you made, turn that into the volumes it's at in the subsurface, that's 100,000 barrels a day. Okay, which means that over 50 years, you're gonna put 2 billion barrels of CO2 underground for every big power plant in the country. You're creating a giant CO2 field. Okay, not a simple task. You're gonna need many hundreds of wells. And if you wanna get, one gigaton of abatement, you need 600 of these. There aren't 600 coal-fired power plants in the country. So it's a lot. It's not a simple, trivial task. The thing, though, is that doing this makes the cost of reaching those stabilization targets about 30% cheaper. If you tried to do it all with renewables, with nuclear with changing coal plants to gas plants, with, with wind, with all the tricks in our sleeve, if you don't have this option, be prepared to spend a few trillion dollars more. The last reason why we like this is, again, because of China and India. They're going to dominate this whole issue. And we, we already know this. They're building 1,000 megawatts of coal-fired power plant every week. Which means every year they build 50,000 megawatts of coal-fired power. That's a minimal estimate. Okay? And it's the bad stuff. The good news is that we think it'll work. China is a very complicated area of geology. It's about 10 different continents that got slapped together in the past 600 million years. The good news is that there's lots of basins that can hold CO2. And you can do a quick ranking and say, you want the ones in the east, because that's where people live and where the coal plants are. And there's at least six or seven basins that are high priority. you can say, we can figure those out quickly and see if they can store CO2. And the short answer is, we already know they can, because they store oil and gas. So if they can store oil and gas, they can probably hold CO2 as well. Right now, those basins are very close to million tons supplies of pure CO2 already. So we can, in a matter of a decade, we can sort out whether or not we can do this in China and India. Again, not rocket science, rock science. I'm going to leave you with this last little bit, okay? As we go forward in the world, we're really thinking about two different things at the same time. And these are real. I don't want to give you the impression that one is more important than the other, because they're not. One of them is the climate concern. We know that there's an issue with climate. Maybe we have a low-carbon constrained world. Maybe we have a high-carbon constrained world. If people get serious about global warming, we're going to be living around here someplace. But there's another access to this, which is energy security. If there's a lot of concern about energy supply, you know, then people are just going to pay more money to make sure that we have a secure supply. We're going to start building coal-to-liquids plants in the United States. We're going to get real serious about energy efficiency in this world because we're worried about security of supply. And there are perfectly good scenarios in which we have to worry about both. We have to worry about security of energy supply and we have to worry about global warming. Where we are today may be in here, but we don't actually know. And we have control over how this future evolves to a certain extent. So what can we do? And this is data from BP, these are their slides. High concern of energy security, high concern to climate, these are your options. And what carbon capture and storage does is it allows you to take these options and reduce their carbon footprint. You can pull them over this way. But that's not the only game in town. There's lots of things. You can have demand-side solutions. You can have biofuels. There's lots of ways that you can tackle this. But we need them all because not all of these is a wedge. Electric generation, same thing. Right now, 60% of the electricity in the world is in coal and gas, roughly speaking. That doesn't ever go away. 0.01% is solar just for comparison. We know what the cost of these different things is to make electricity. So these are this is coal today, basically, and this is natural gas today. This is what the prices are. These are zero-emission options. Here's wind farms, nuclear power plants. If we burn hydrogen and put the CO2 underground, if we burn natural gas and put the CO2 underground, this is the cost of those operations. What that says is that will cost your electricity bill about an extra 5 to 10%. It's not that much, actually, to do this. And if we get really serious, we have other things. We have biomass gasification, we have wave power, we have solar power. There's a whole bunch of other things we can go to. They're more expensive, but as this becomes more urgent, we have plenty of options. And that's what it looks like in the power sector. You have many, many different opportunities here for what you go after. And part of the choices will be which world do you end up living in? Do you end up living in one where all that you care about is energy supply, in which case we're going to be burning all the coal we can get our hands on? But you have to understand that that's going to have consequences in climate. If what we end up really caring about is the climate world's well, we're going to be building a lot of nuclear power plants. We're going to be making hydrogen power plants and putting the carbon dioxide underground. We'll just be doing that, because we care, because that's what we want as, a, as an integrated global community. So the likely future, we're still going to be using hydrocarbons. That part never goes away. They're just too good. They're going to dominate transportation, and that's actually the hardest part of the system to wring the carbon dioxide out of. In the meantime, we're going to still have to go after coal and natural gas. We're going to want to build more nuclear power plants. We're going to want to have solar power and winds and renewables. They're going to start as niche application. As the technology improves, hopefully those will grow. And we can have breakthroughs in biomass. We can have breakthroughs in solar and wind. And most importantly, demand reduction. We have to really get serious about energy efficiency. Efficient conversion, I don't think... Actually, we're lucky here. All of these lights, this almost never happens, all the lights in this room are compact fluorescent bulbs. That's great. I think in my house, one of my light bulbs is compact fluorescent bulbs. So I'm not doing a very good job of this, and Gene will chastise me later. But it's important. You can get there. If we don't, the CO2 emissions will continue to rise, absent dramatic global action. And it's part of the reason why you need these technology pieces. Because we can't convince China and India to stop burning their coal. We have to give them better options. We can't tell them not to give their people prosperity or electricity. We, that it won't work. We have to give them better alternatives. And they're not going to do energy research. We are. And Europe is. And Japan is. The OECD countries are going to be the places this comes from. And I'm very proud of the fact that our laboratory is a place where we're making a lot of this technology and vetting it today. With that, I want to thank you for your time, and I want to reintroduce Dick and thank him again for giving me the opportunity to speak.